renowned scholar Bob Dylan once wrote, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you might like to dance, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. I don't think that Dylan would describe himself as a theologian, but in this case, he serves us as a good one. Because it's true that everyone lives for something. Everybody worships. Another way to say it is everybody serves something. One of the things we'll see today as we walk through Exodus is the Israelites find themselves in a difficult circumstance, and what it does is lays bare their hearts. And it reveals to them that though they are free from Egypt physically, they're not yet free psychologically. In their time of crisis, they turn to their true gods, counterfeit ones from Egypt. As we've been walking through the book of Exodus together, we've determined that the primary melody line in the book and throughout all of Scripture that is reverberating in our ears goes like this. God is working sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. And once more today, we're going to hear that chorus as we consider Exodus 13, verse 17 through verse 21 of chapter 15 together. And in this section, we will see that God's majesty and his greatness are magnified as he keeps his promise to deliver his people out of Egypt and into fellowship with himself. The Exodus is all about God freeing his people from something, for something. Israel is freed from service to a counterfeit God and into service for the one true God. Everybody has to serve somebody. And you know that God has been about freeing his people for the worship, the right worship of himself since early on in Exodus. We saw it in 4.23 when he said, let my son or my people go that he may serve me. And that line has been repeated throughout. It's a a motif that we should be familiar with by now. And so the main idea that we're going to have before us this morning is that God frees his people from, I'm sorry, from service to service freeing all of his people from our worship of counterfeit gods so that we might worship and honor him, the one true God. I once heard somebody say that words are hooks to hang ideas on. And so if you want to hang the idea that God frees his people from service for something, for service on a word, uh, that word could be worship. The other three words that are going to, or hooks, if you will, that will serve as our outline this morning are freedom, salvation, and song. We'll pray together and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. That we would not be like the path that has uh, seeds sown on it, and the birds come and snatch it away. That we wouldn't be tempted to have our uh, thoughts distracted by the evil one. We ask that you wouldn't allow us to be rocky in the reception of your word, that we wouldn't allow difficulty in our lives to cause us to doubt you. Pray that we would not be as seed that falls among thorns and allows the deceitfulness of riches to choke out your word. Father, make us good soil this morning that we might receive your word and that within us it would produce produce a large harvest. 
that we might honor you, be faithful to you, delight in you. We ask that you would do this this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's remember how we got to where we are very quickly here. Joseph brought his then small family, uh, not very many of them, down into Egypt about 400-ish plus years ago. He died. His descendants multiplied very much so. Pharaoh freaked out about this, and so he enslaved the Hebrews in order to mitigate the risk of rebellion. That turned out not to be enough. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they flourished. And so he tried secret and then explicit genocide, where they were tossing the Hebrew boys into the Nile. That plan, though, too failed as God continued to be faithful to keep his promise to both grow his people and deliver his people. Indeed, the great deliverer would be plucked out of an ark that was floating atop the Nile by Pharaoh's own daughter and would eat at his own table, in his own palace. If you remember, Moses eventually gets disenchanted with his royal life and is discouraged by the mistreatment of the Hebrews, and he kills a guy, buries him in the sand, and ends up in exile for 40-plus years. And we found him in chapter 3, shepherding sheep and living in his father-in-law's basement. Life wasn't going too well for him. And then God showed up and said, I'm going to rescue the people, and I'm going to send you, I'm going to use you to do it. Long story short, after Moses objects, he and Aaron end up before Pharaoh demanding that he let the people of Israel go so that they might worship him in the wilderness. Pharaoh refuses over and over again. The ten plagues happen. And after the death of the firstborn of all the sons in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh has told Israel to get to Gittin. And they are on their way out of Egypt. And so we find ourselves in verse 17 of chapter 13 where we read, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea, along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. So God's going to take the people the long way into the wilderness because even though they're in battle formation, they are not yet ready to go to war with the Philistines. That will come later. Further, if he doesn't take them this awkward way into the wilderness, uh, Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt are not going to come after the Israelites. It's almost like he's taunting Egypt a little bit here as they wander back and forth on the edge, getting ready to go into the wilderness, but it seems like maybe they're too afraid to take that final step and actually go into the wilderness. What God is after here is he wants to make clear once more that he is superior to all counterfeit gods. And he's going to do so through Pharaoh's foolishness. He's actually going to bait Egypt into chasing his people. God's also going to use this longer route into the wilderness to teach the people to trust his promises and his power, just like Joseph had before them. And I think that's the reason we have this weird note about Joseph's bones, is to reaffirm that God keeps his promises and to give the people a uh, visual reminder of faithfulness. I mean, Joseph's last wish was to be buried in the promised land. We read it in Genesis 50 and verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid 
and bring you up from this land to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your age, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. That last bit is just so interesting that he's embalmed, and so his bones are probably not just bones, right? There's probably skin and hair on them as well, and the people are probably hauling this around. It probably didn't look this way, but I just picture like one of those big Egyptian coffins with all the gold on it, carrying it around. I don't know. Either way, uh, we're told later that Joseph speaks these words before the people are even enslaved by faith. Hebrews 11.22 tells us such. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites, and gave instructions concerning his bones. Again, they are a visual reminder of God's faithfulness. But in the event that the bones were not enough, or the previous displays of God's signs and wonders and of his power, uh, it seems like this pillar and the cloud that are going to go before the people would be evidence of God's power and his faithfulness. They would increase the trust of the people. Look at what we read in verse 21. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could, not, so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. I mean, this is awesome. Moses and company have like a giant lightsaber, uh, some night vision goggles, a little GPS system going on. They're just following God wherever he takes them, which must have distracted them from the fact that they're almost kind of going in circles here. Right? They, they don't know why they're going where they're going. They don't know why they're camped against the Red Sea. I mean, really strategically a bad place to camp because, say, if somebody attacked them, uh, they would be hemmed in against the sea, have nowhere to go. So they're just following God along. They're, they're not privy to the information that we are as readers. And what we read is that God is doing this to, and we read in verse 4, uh, receive glory. This is what he says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. That's the people. Then I will receive glory or get glory over Pharaoh, get glory by means of Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, God is not done displaying his glory to Egypt and to the nations just yet. He has one more wondrous sign to perform. We read in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. I feel like this is probably a funny conversation because Pharaoh knows he let the people go, right? And they come in like, you do realize that now that these guys are gone, somebody has to do all this labor. And he's like, wait, what did I do? We better go get them. And so what happens is all the king's horses and all the king's men, they go after the Israelites again. Word chariots actually shows up four times in verses six through nine, and it wants to alert us to the fact that Pharaoh is a bad man. I mean, he has the largest military power in the world at his disposal. Egypt is the world's superpower. Pharaoh is a really scary guy. You don't want to be on the wrong side of him. I mean, he has at his disposal the WMDs of the day. Chariots are magnificent weapon of war. I mean, this would be like the United States declaring war on the Vatican, or um, Monaco is what I googled, was like the, law, the smallest nation in the world. That's what's going on here, right? Israel's not even really been made a nation at this point, and they're being attacked by Egypt. It's no contest. So much so that it looks to the reader, 
the unsuspecting reader, as if Pharaoh is going to prevail quite easily. And I think it looks this way to Israel too when we consider verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and saw the Egyptians coming after them. Then the Israelites were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, sarcastically, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you took us out to die in the wilderness? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone, catch this line, so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is so very dumb, right? The people are like, oh, if only we had the good old days when we were back in Egypt and enslaved, right? And they'll do that later on some more. And it just, it's it's so silly to me. And you've come across people, I don't know, maybe you haven't, but I do. I come across folks every now and again that tell me how much better life was 100 years ago. And I always just puzzlingly look at them and like, are you kidding me? Everything is awesome now. Like, I love indoor plumbing. I love a hot shower. I mean, Google is my friend. I don't know how I'd fix anything without it or get anywhere. Internet, electricity, you know, indoor plumbing, all, it's all awesome. You know what we call the good old days now, I say, is camping, right? I don't like camping. <laughs> I like my bed. I guess, though, that what the Israelites are doing is normal. It's when you, you get crushed in kind of a hard situation, all of a sudden uh, the past looks a whole lot better, right? It's easy to glorify or idealize the past when uh, something troubling happens. Douglas Stewart comments on this. He says, When hardship is encountered, the miserable past suddenly looks like the good old days. The Israelites were simply thinking the way most people think of the past when the present seems unbearable. So we get a sense of their sentiment, right? If, if we were still slaves, at least we would have our lives. Moses, you made our situation worse. And we read in verse 13. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Now, I'll be honest with you. For a long time, I misread this verse like Moses was like, encouraging the people, giving a little bit of a rah-rah speech. But when you look at it in the Hebrew, you realize it's much more curt and terse than that. That This is actually a rebuke. Right? In, the, in the Hebrew, the last uh, part of the verse, it's only two Hebrew words, and I think they are best translated as, you be quiet, or as Peter Enns points out, shut up, which I love. So this, it's not a word of comfort, but of angry denouncement at the Israelites' paper-thin faith. You might be thinking to yourself, though, if I had a pillar and a cloud leading me around, God's presence was right there. I could look and see it. I wouldn't freak out like this when something bad happened, right? I would have faith. I would have courage. Egyptian army, no problem. Got our giant lightsaber here, cloud there. I would wager, though, that when you've encountered difficult circumstances in your life, that you've done exactly what Israel does, that your gods that you once forsook start looking really, really good. You're tempted to run to them. And I think our fear and our turning away from God is actually worse than Israel's because we have something infinitely better than a cloud and a pillar. I mean, we, if you are in Christ, you have God, the Holy Spirit, living 
in you. Christians are indwelt with the presence of God. Jesus tells us this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I do not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. God is not just among us as he was with Israel in the pillar and the cloud and in the tabernacle and in the temple. He is in us. And that's better. James Hamilton concurs in his book, God's Indwelling Presence, when he writes, In the Old Covenant, God faithfully remained with his people, accompanying them in the tabernacle and the temple. Under the New Covenant, the only temple is the believing community itself. And God dwells not only among the community corporately, but also in each member individually. And so I think that when we want to question Israel, we might say, how could they be so dumb? I think very well that question applies to ourselves when we find ourselves caught in sin. How could we be so dumb as to think that serving a false god would somehow bring us more delight than being obedient to the one true God. And then the answer is this, that even though Jesus has freed us from sin's power and sin's penalty, we are not yet free from sin's presence, right? Sin is still in the world. We are still sinners, still tempted to do things that dishonor God and despise his glory. And sin's presence has a way of suffocating our hope by utilizing circumstances to cloud our judgment and keep us from experiencing the true freedom that comes by following God's good and right restriction. Remember last week and many times before, we've said freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but finding the right ones. So like a fish that's on grass isn't actually free, (laughs) right? He has no restrictions. He's on the grass, but he can't breathe. He's probably going to die. And so the fish is freest when he's able to swim in the ocean. Likewise, as Christians, as followers of God, anybody that bears the image of God, that's all people, are freest when we do life according to God's design for it. We become as fish in water. However, our circumstances, especially when they become difficult, have a way of making us think that God's restrictions aren't all that great and that we need to develop our own. We need to be completely free. And usually when we make decisions that way, it doesn't go well for us. Uh, Not a great illustration, but I think about uh, when I go out to eat. Uh, There's a menu there, and I go, maybe I want to be a little bit healthy, want to live longer. Most of you that know me know that's probably not true. But (laughs) I'm going to try to pick like us. I should pick. I know what I ought to pick if I want to have a healthy life. I probably should eat like this salad, maybe some more kale. But what I want to pick, I got some chicken wings over here. Well, pizza, that's usually what I go with. But, but the point is, is that if I pick those things, the, the pizza and the wings, it's not what's best for me if I'm trying to be healthy. And so doing what I want to do in that situation ultimately makes me captive to poor health. It's not ultimately freeing. Again, we see that freedom involves having the right restrictions. My doctor tells me, hey, it's most healthy for you to eat salads if you want to have this effect in your life. And I should eat salads, and I need to listen to him. That's what's going to help me accomplish my goal of being healthy. 
Likewise, God tells us what is going to lead to a healthy life, healthy lives for ourselves, right? He's a spiritual doctor, and he tells us this is what is going to increase your joy. This is how I've made you. Israel's circumstances, however, as they pressed in on them, reveal that they still serve Pharaoh. And I think likewise that we, we do succumb to this temptation of serving other gods or to uh, drip down the other analogy of eating pizza instead of salad. I hate that salad's the good thing in this illustration. I should have switched that somehow. But so, for example, let's say you root your value and your meaning and your happiness or your satisfaction in anything other than Christ. Well, when you do that, that's what you, you're proving that you serve counterfeit gods or false gods. You're, ser- you're worshiping. Everybody worships all the time. But you're putting your worship in something that is not the one true God of the universe. Tim Keller gives us an excellent way of discovering some of our counterfeit gods uh, by offering a taxonomy in his book that goes by the title, Counterfeit Gods. He says, fill in the blank, and I, I would like you to do this as an exercise. Fill, fill in the blank in your mind. I would be happy if... The thing I worry most about not getting in life is the thing I worry most about losing in life is see, whatever you put in the blanks there, it's what or who you are living for. It's what you serve. What you worship. It's what you're looking to for meaning and satisfaction and happiness. Everybody lives for something. That something that you live for, if it's not Jesus, is going to enslave you and leave you unhappy and disappointed. One of the best illustrations of this I saw when we were reading through, um, reading through Jesus Outside the Lines uh, on Thursday nights together. And he quotes Jim Carrey who said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. False gods disappoint. They cannot deliver. They cannot save. Only Jesus can give us true, unshakable value. Full meaning. Complete satisfaction. Unmitigated happiness. Only Jesus Christ can secure peace for you. I think too often Christians, we live a little bit like um, Rocky Balboa. Have you all seen the movie Rocky? I hope so. It's a good one. Uh, in the movie, he explains why he has to fight Apollo Creed to Adrian. She wants to know why he wants to fight, fight Apollo. And he said, I can't do a Stallone impression, so I'm not going to try. But uh, he says, you know, Adrian, if I... <laughs> I almost started to do an impression. Adrian, if I can go 15 rounds with this guy. Nobody's ever gone the distance with him. And if I can go 15 rounds, if I can go the distance... And I want to read this one word for word. I will know for the first time in my life, you see that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. And so how Rocky is going to know that he is somebody is by his performance. Now his performance comes in a boxing ring, but I think what Christians do is we'll find different areas of life that we can perform in in order to validate ourselves. Uh, Sometimes it's rigid religious behavior. And we think because I do X, Y, and Z, that means I'm righteous. That means I'm somebody. And we're on this treadmill forever and ever and a terrible thing happens when we fall off the treadmill, when we're not able to go 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. We end up devastated. 
We don't need to live like Rocky to be something or somebody. Because the Christian who's trusted in Jesus Christ is somebody, is infinitely valuable. They are the firstborn son of God by virtue of their faith in Christ. I think the irony of what happens when we try to make ourselves acceptable to God is that we actually repudiate the gospel we claim. One of the things, if I ever ask somebody, are you a Christian, and they respond with something akin to, I'm trying, I automatically want to yell, like, you don't get it. You don't get it. Christianity is not about trying. That's every other false world religion. That's every other false god out there. They all spell salvation as Dio. They say, do, do, do. Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity says, done. It is finished. The work of Jesus in your place, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, means you're somebody. It means you don't have to try to earn your salvation. God has called you son. This is what makes Christianity unparalleled among world religions. One of the many things that shows it to be true. I think when we're tempted to uh, despise God and look to uh, performance or these other idols in our lives, these counterfeit gods to give us meaning and satisfaction, we do well to remember Moses' rebuke. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Shut up. So I think when we find ourselves in a hard spot, difficult circumstances, we need to remind ourselves that God has already fought and secured the victory for us. So when marriage is difficult, can't get along with your spouse, or when your family is in an impossible situation, when you've lost your job, when you have a job you don't like, when you're in pain, when you're sick, when a loved one dies, don't look to these other things for comfort. Trust in the God who is for you. Remember, There's no need to return to the slavery of sin because you've already been delivered. See, the Exodus story, it's not a pep talk uh, for when we go through trying circumstances to teach us that God will win our battles for us. If anything, it is a pep talk to remind us that God has already won the battle. All of our daily battles, which are real and they, they matter to God, They need to be seen in the overarching context that ultimately God has won. The fact of the matter is that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we we must remember that we are not awaiting God's deliverance, but that deliverance has already come in Christ. See, if you're a Christian, your biggest problem has been solved. You were dead and in love with your sin. But God, being rich in mercy and full of love, made you together alive with Christ. Therefore, evaluate every circumstance in your life in light of that glorious truth. Any hardship or suffering that you experience prepares you for a peculiar glory that you will receive when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Christian, you should plaster 2 Corinthians 4, 17 on your heart. I'm going to read 14 through 18 and then point out 17 specifically. This is what Paul writes. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that grace, 
extended through more and more people. May cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Here's verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, when we find ourselves hemmed in against the metaphorical Red Sea, we ought not turn to our counterfeit gods, but remember that God's deliverance has already come. And the current circumstances don't give us the whole picture. They're not the final um, standard on which we understand the work of God. We must have an eternal perspective and look to the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus, who died in our place and has secured the new heavens and the new earth for us, who has secured fellowship with him and one another for us. We must remember that we have been saved from service to these false gods and into service, worship, of Jesus Christ, the one true God. Friends, don't return to your slavery. Israel's faith here, though, is faltering, but God is faithful, and so he speaks to Moses in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Notice in verse 15, God speaks to Moses as if he were the one that complains. Do you see that? It's intentional. Moses had, in fact, rebuked the people. Also, before that, notice it says the Israelites cried out to God, and then in the next line, they're talking to Moses. Now, couple that with what we saw back in chapter 7, verse 1, where we read, God said to Moses, not you are going to be like a God to Pharaoh, but you are going to be God to Pharaoh. And then we're also told that Moses really identifies, he identifies, we see with the Israelites, not only here, but also in the opening chapters, right? That's when he kills the Egyptian. He identifies as a Hebrew. Go, why is the author emphasizing this in an ambiguous way? And it, the reason is this. Moses is being presented as a mediator as one who is able to represent both God and the people. So he stands in for both at different times. Dr. Morita writes, You have one man so identified with the Israelites that their guilt was on him. He got rebuked for the Israelites' sin in verse 15. He was also so identified with God that God's power was working through him. He is a mediator. He is the man in the middle. He represents God to the people and the people to God. And he points us to another mediator, a better one. Jesus Christ, who was not rebuked for one sin in one verse, but who took God's wrath for all sin. Jesus, however, was greater than Moses because he was a mediator that did not merely identify with God, but was God, is God. Indeed, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus himself, who gave himself as a ransom for all, as a testimony at the proper time. 
God is rescuing the Israelites from his just wrath through Moses, and this foreshadows the greater exodus, the greater deliverance, when he will rescue his people through God the Son, Jesus Christ. The rescue of Israel is eminent here, but they are sweating, and it's so funny to see God just kind of tell Moses, what's the problem, man? Like, just split the sea. Reach that staff up. You guys will walk through on dry ground. It'll be cool. Notice uh, verses 22 and 29 are, are identical. So the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. What's going on here is the author is intentionally making these verses identical to show us that what comes in between has great importance. There's a theme in the middle. And the theme in between is judgment. So, for example, I think verses 27 and 28, which fall in between, capture this judgment poignantly. It says, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The waters came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, and the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. None of them survived. Notice some of the irony here. Egypt's punishment is coming full circle, right? They drowned in the sea, the infants of Israel, and God is drowning them in the sea. Sorry, they did it in the Nile. God's doing it in the sea. I think summary in verses uh, 30 and 31 make the point even more clear. The Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. And so what we see in 22 and 29 and all that stuff in between, and then in the summary verses at the end there, is this. There are two ways to relate to God. Again, this is another motif we've seen throughout Exodus. We can relate to God by his mercy, by fearing and believing in and serving, worshiping him, or by his judgment, by rebelling against him and serving self and substitute gods instead. Remember, God does not leave evil unpunished. He's good and he's just. He avenges wrongdoing. The question is, will he avenge your wrongdoing in the future or has he already taken care of it in Christ? The choice is yours. Now, Christian, I implore you, if you're here with us today, to follow Jesus. Know him by his mercy rather than his wrath. No one deserves his mercy and love, and still he offers it. I mean, we've already seen Israel screw up enough, and they're going to much, much more. They're going to show their unworthiness to be saved multiple times. They don't even have mustard seed faith, right? They don't even have a little bit. But remember, it's not the amount of faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the strength of the person that we have faith in. I mean, I can imagine the thousands of Israelites crossing the Red Sea, and some of them have very little faith, and they're all scrunched together in the middle on the dry land, and the water's over there, and they're like, let's do this as quickly as we can. They're doing that shuffle, trying not to get too close. And then, because I have kids now, I think of it this way. There's like toddlers running around because somebody let them off the leash for some reason. And they're, they're in there and they've got, they're like, I wonder if my finger will get wet when I put my finger in, in this wall of water. And the parents are like trying to pull them away. No, no, no. And they're probably courageous Israelites too, just kind of strutting like, I'm not afraid. But you see, the point here that I'm making is that both those with strong faith and weak faith experience the same deliverance. When they decide to follow God's mediator to salvation, they are delivered. 
regardless of the amount of their faith. It's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of faith. Our faith, even if it's paper thin, if it's in Christ, is saving. It's enough. It is too important to note, I think, that salvation that is experienced by Christians, uh, it comes with a, a decisive act, right? And there comes a point, sometimes you're 